previously on Keep the Dream Alive. So my first tour was opening up for the Mountain Goats, and that, for me, was just, like, mind-blowing. We would all share a hotel room. You're really stressed. I mean, honestly, I've never been more stressed in my life than when I've been on tour in a van. And you're just, you know, just so you can make, like, a $250 show. And it's, like, an unsustainable kind of, like, emotional tension and the studio is breaking down. So touring almost like mimics this manic depressive cycle, this mental health emergency cycle. And honestly, I would have I would have fucking murdered a child at that point to keep touring. And man, let me tell you, there's nothing uglier than a fucking low budget arts business with like a razor thin profit margin having to like pantomime capitalism. There is no more busted model for a business than a recording studio. It was just a matter of time before the people who owned that plot of land were going to realize that they could make a lot of money by not having the current tenants there. I'm actually kind of surprised that it, it made it as long as it did. I mean, I, I, I've recorded in other studios in San Francisco that were in far worse shape, that cost three times as much per day. And depending on your perspective, that makes John an incredibly uh, dumb person <laughs> or one of the most generous people that you could ever know. All that we fucking have in the end is just personal interaction. That's it. It's all you're left with. So, you know... What are you going to do with that? You're going to be a prick or are you going to be fun to hang out with? Keep the dream alive. Keep the dream alive. Hi, this is John Vanderslice, owner of Tiny Telephone Recording and Musician. So it's 2004, 2005, and the studio had really grown into something that was... I don't know, it's kind of beyond like a, a business or even an arts business where we had people just showing up like unannounced, like kind of like tourists, which was really wild and definitely super annoying because you can't, you can't like walk in on a session and bands would be super freaked out. And sometimes those bands would be like micro bands and then other times they would be really big. And so that was kind of wild, but the good part about that is that as the studio got culty, it just was permanently booked. I'd spent a lot of time making policies that were, on one hand, respectful to bands, but also kind of punitive in a way that we were really cheap. And, you know, the studio at this point was 250 a day, with, and engineers, I think, were 200 a day. We were under market, but we kind of like highly valued that people would book days in the studio and then keep their time. I mean, we were really targeting working class bands that were on our touring schedule that would come back and then book two weeks, 10 days, three weeks a month to make a record and then just immediately go back on tour. And I think around this time too, we, we hit a record of uh, continuous days booked. I think it was in 2009 that we, it was like somewhere on 450 days in a row sold out. And that includes, of course, like Thanksgiving and Christmas and whatever holidays. And I don't know, these things were, they were kind of really important to me because I think that running an arts business, first off, when you start an arts business, People root for you, for sure, but I, I mean, I remember my bandmates feeling sorry for me because I was, like, so revved up about starting a studio, and they just thought that it was, like, sad, you know? And I I mean, I actually, I, I totally get this now because I do think that if I had put whatever energy I put into building the studio and, like, literally anything else, it would have been, like, like, like successful. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think it's like you're animating a corpse on a certain level but like but I, those those markers of being in demand and also being like valuable and valued and again it's this fucked up trick of we're forced to play this capitalism game we adhere to like the market and there was something really funny to me about running a business that was completely unpermitted i mean god the amount of cheating i did on my taxes and all this other 
borderline at best behavior, and we still manage to pay bills and kind of operate with at least enough legality to be left alone was it, it felt like super subversive <laughs> and and funny. I mean, I think that in in the end, the 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 kind of like the effect of like you know grinding out a day and then going home and then thinking about all the weird shit that you saw or dealt with and that you survived it was to me was funny the reputation was growing I think for a couple reasons. One, the world wasn't as interneted up then, and so bands really had to rely on each other for advice. And also, I remember bands would record at the studio, and then they would often be from out of town, and when they would come into San Francisco on tour, they would mention the studio on stage. And I remember, I was like, fuck, this is like the best, this is the best advertisement for the studio. You know, we're in like the Fillmore, and... You know, there's nothing but musicians in the audience. And I don't know, it just, there was no, we've, we never placed an ad. We never, we never sought out any kind of non-organic method of like being talked about or noticed. I, I do think that the name was kind of like cute and funny and really helped us. It sounds fun. Like t going to record a tiny telephone sounds fun. And it's, you know what I mean? It sounds like appealing. And all of a sudden, we were getting like noise bands from Japan. And then we would get bands from Spain and France. And sometimes I'd realize, like, oh, these are just bands that toured with Deerhoof, or they toured with Death Cab, or they toured with Karuli, or they toured with Dismemberment Plan. And this was kind of the link. So there was always like one or two segments away. And also, listen, at that time, San Francisco still had some, I don't know, some, it had some weight as like a cultural center. And I think, unfortunately now, I think that there would be like a disincentive for someone to come to San Francisco because they're just one, they're just concerned it would be very expensive to go there. And... And two, I think that the tech overlay has drained out any um, kind of like feeling of like magic or, you know, anarchy or just art in general <laughs> out, of, out of the city, unfortunately. I'm Daniel Handler. I write children's books under the name Lemony Snicket, and I'm the adjunct accordionist for the magnetic field. Let's pretend we're bunny rabbits. Let's do it all day long. Well, I've lived in the city almost all of my life, and um, every moment that I've lived in the city, people have complained about the city changing. And I've always kind of taken that in stride. I've always thought that's just the thing to complain about. The longer you live here, the more the, there's an imaginary glory day that you want to refer to. But I do think recent years in San Francisco crossed a new kind of line. I think the money uh, rushing in so quickly and so ferociously and with so little equity and equality has made a situation that is unaffordable for artists. And so I watched countless artists leave this city and i watched the fragile scenario in which artists could stay in san francisco and make their things become impossible and for musicians one of them for sure was space to work and rehearse and perform and record was just these rooms that often have to be larger than a profit margin can sustain in order to do that became impossible. So I watched rehearsal spaces disappear. I watched neighborhoods where you could play music late at night in your living room with the windows open and no one would complain. I watched those neighborhoods transform to have that impossible. And I watched venues where 
a band that was just kind of scruffily getting its act together could still play and still make progress and still please people. And I watched those places disappear and certainly recording studios, just a room, you know, a room big enough where you could have a drum kit and a Hammond organ and, you know, three or four musicians and another room where you can hang out and figure out what you're going to do next. And a room where the recording is and where you could listen to it. All that just became, um, it went from being difficult to being impossible in San Francisco in a few years. And Tiny Telephone, for me, is symbolic of that profound change that has happened in San Francisco. After years of little changes and after years of various challenges to artists, I think that San Francisco has crossed a line and has made itself unaffordable to people who are making art. I mean, I think it's hard to talk about what's special about Tiny Telephone without sounding like a dumb hippie, but uh, it has a great vibe. (laughs) Um, So many uh, recording studios are full of uh, kind of glaring dudes reluctant to be of any help to the artists. And it's a vulnerable place, a recording studio. you're in a little booth or in a little room that you don't know that well, and there are microphones set up. And even if you've rehearsed a gazillion times and you know exactly what you're going to do, you know, this is the one, this is the one that's going to appear on some record someplace. And oftentimes in a recording studio, there's some dude who's making you feel even more awkward and self-conscious and making you feel like you ought to conform to his taste or his specifications rather than whatever it is that you're trying to do as artists. And Tiny Telephone had none of that. Tiny Telephone made you feel like you were hanging out in a room and that everyone was behind you. You were having a lot of fun and uh, you were making music the way people love to make music, which is with each other, uh, cracking each other up, kind of turning each other on, tossing ideas around. That's what it felt like. It felt like the kind of positive private experiences of making music. When you hang out in someone's living room or you're, uh, or every so often on stage and you're just hitting that perfect groove and Tiny Telephone somehow found that vibe. I don't know what their secret was, but it was my favorite place to work. I felt like a person. I felt like a musician and not like a client. I was, at the time, uh, like a hardcore analog purist. And I think that the things that drove it were, I mean, there were, there were many reasons, but one of them was that I watched every studio bail on, it was, it was almost like the day that like Monsanto rolls into your fucking ag town and everyone's buying up Roundup and some, some, you know, gnarly shit. And you're just like, this is fucked up. This is wrong and unsustainable. And this is like a busted up shortcut and, and fuck this. Yeah. It's difficult to operate tape machines that weigh 1200 pounds and you have to like talk to them and I don't know, clean edge conductors and connectors and do all this other weird shit, but, but you can do it. Keep in mind, just to foreshadowing, I, I don't believe any of this stuff anymore because digital recording has gotten so much better. But we're talking like 2000, 2005, where Pro Tools fucking sucked. And these records, I, I always thought that the worst thing that could ever happen to a band is that they discovered like mid-fi digital recording because it, it, it almost destroyed any style you know what i mean like I, I i felt that like digital was like really really good at defanging bands and that there was something about misusing analog tape machines and four tracks and like there was like an inherent level of violence and noise and chaos where a computer made 
the coolest band into the most timid and kind of like hall of mirrors, paranoid, self-reflecting worrywart. And, and I just, I was really, um, I just wasn't, wasn't having it. And again, I mean, the funny, the irony, I just don't believe any of this stuff anymore. And I, I don't, I don't look back and think that I was wrong, but I also don't look back and think I was right, you know, because these things are complicated. But I do know that I was very, very reactionary because studios were, they were bailing so hard on tape that I was able to buy, I mean, I bought so many fucking tape machines that I basically had to rent a space to store the tape machines. That's kind of sick, right? I mean, and I was getting tape machines crated and sent to me from like the woods of Pennsylvania or New York City or Seattle and there'd be like two or three grand shit that was you know when those last Studer 827s rolled off the line I don't know when that was 1998 1999 they were 98 grand or 117 or some crazy shit they were like complicated and like very very evolved late stage analog masterpieces And I respect the history of recording and I respected these companies and I thought, well, if it's going to be like a bunch of microwave ovens out there, I'm going to be fucking psycho and keep this old stuff working because I know it sounds good. You know what I mean? Like, I know that these tape machines sound amazing. And so I kind of like flew the flag. I mean, again, part of this is working at Chez Panisse where... Alice Waters told me one day, she's like, listen, I was like telling her I was going to start a studio. And she's like, listen, whatever you do, fly a flag. We chose very early on that it was like, you know, farm to table, organic, you know, farms and like these connections where we either owned a farm or we had like connections to someone who owned a boat and went fishing or, you know, someone who foraged for truffles, you know, stuff like that. And So she was basically just saying, like, it doesn't necessarily matter what the flag is as long as it kind of denotes something that you're passionate about. And so not only did I fly the analog flag, but I burned down those other fucking digital flags. I mean, I, like, would ridicule, like, studios in interviews. And, like, I just thought it was, like, inherently lazy. And I knew that the reason why these studios had bailed on tape was that they were just lazy like i didn't believe that they thought that digital was better and so i made fun of them. <laughs> my name is bo sorensen i'm a Recording engineer, producer, uh, musician, sort of general non-musician audio person, I guess. Yeah. Basically, I I grew up in the Midwest and I started recording. I learned to record and started recording at a studio in Madison, Wisconsin um, that no longer exists uh, called Smart Studios. And there's a sort of philosophical and spiritual connection between Uh, smart and tiny, both in terms of the sort of spirit they both worked in. So uh, smart was this amazing little studio in Madison, Wisconsin, that uh, was started by uh, Butch Vig and Steve Marker, probably around the very early 80s. And like a lot of studios, honestly, in the very parallel path to tiny was started by like a small group of people who wanted a place to rehearse and make their own recordings and sort of have the freedom to do what they wanted, and made a ton of really sort of interesting and creative sounding records throughout the 80s until of course everyone knows which sort of found a lot of success in the 90s which sort of upgraded the studio in a lot of ways as well and um sort of after the the 90s boom of things we started to see pro tools start to pro proliferate more we started to see home recording become more affordable it's a story everybody knows about studios and that definitely sort of ate into the the bottom line of the studio in a way and also at the same time the entire recording industry started to contract ridiculously and where bands used to be able to like travel to go make a record they could like come to madison it was sort of novel be like let's get out of one of the coastal cities let's go to the midwest and let's sort of hole up at the studio there's just like no more money to do that and 
people were, instead of using record advances to make records, they'd use a record advance to build their own studio, which is totally smart when you think about it. You know, it's like, it's not a bad idea, but it just meant that bigger profile artists were not coming to the studios more. And so it was like trying to exist in this middle ground between serving artists who were major label artists who had big budgets, but then trying to also make sure you can make it affordable for people who are you know, not signed, who don't have a ton of resources, which was kind of a tough sort of thing. One of the tougher things with studios at the time was that like a lot of studios had like a card rate, which is what they would advertise, but then they would sort of like cut a deal for people who were smaller. And that's a tough thing to navigate because it's like, you know, there's something sort of egalitarian about charging people who can afford more and more. But one of the things I always loved about Tiny and John is that like the rate was the rate. It was public. Everybody paid the same thing. To me, that was like revolutionary about Tiny. And I really appreciated that. You know, it was very like, this is what we are. This is what we cost. And uh, nobody gets a discount, that sort of thing. Uh, So as that stuff kind of continued, Smart just became just tougher and tougher to manage. Uh, It was sort of like an older world studio in a modern and changing world, I guess. My general feeling was that the bigger the band, the more of a pain in the ass they are. And like, at some point we had enough credits. You know what I mean? We simply had enough of a discography where it did not, it didn't matter anymore. So in the early days, I would be, I would not dissuade bigger bands from coming in. And a couple of those times, like Train came in a bunch of times and they were super respectful. Now that she's back in the atmosphere with drops of Jupiter. And they were massive. I mean, they were playing stadiums at that point, you know? They were playing, they'd go to Rio and play for like 20,000 people. And they would have like multiple managers. And then, you know, when people would ask me like where they could hook up a fax machine, that's where I was just like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't want a fucking fax machine. And like managers hovering over like, I don't know. I just didn't like that. But so in general, we would dissuade bands like that, but there was one thing that really did it, and that's when, when Third Eye Blind came in the studio. So around you know 2005, 2006, I was touring a lot. I was probably touring at least six months out of the year, and so I would kind of really value when when a band would approach me for large chunks of time. And I quickly learned that that's like very problematic because if you give a band too much time, then your like normal client base gets bummed out because they, they want a week or a day and the studio just gets locked out. But before I really figured that out, Third Eye Blind asked me for four months of studio time. And it was kind of around the time that I was just putting out, I think it was Pixel Revolt. And I knew I was going to be touring, and I just thought, this is incredible. I can leave town. I don't have to think about the studio. And I didn't really know anyone in the band. Um, So they came to the studio to meet me, and so we could just kind of, like, suss it out. So the studio is 250 a day. Third Eye Blind's on Electra at the time. And I am, in many ways, I'm like an anti-snob. I don't, I don't, I never prioritized a band because I liked their music because you don't know what's going to happen in the studio. Your favorite band can come in and make like a very disappointing record and a band that you have either written off or don't think that you've connect, will connect to at all can like shock you and make real interesting art. So I just kind of don't really think or weigh into this stuff before something happens. And also it's not my business. I I feel like I'm like a doctor or like we're a hospital, you know, we're here to provide, we're here to make everyone healthier, happier and make better recorded art. So the third eye blind crew comes in, the three band members arrive early without Steven Jenkins. They were super sweet. The, a producer came in who was really, I mean, I've called him out in print before, so it's not, 
it's not hard to find his name, but I feel like I've dragged this guy enough, so I'm not going to do, do it anymore. But he was like a fucking asshole, top-level asshole. He came in, and he just like immediately set the tone. I was like, man, I don't know about this fucking crew. I mean... I don't, you know, and I, I think I was just naive or I wanted just to not think about the studio. So I'm already kind of like getting vibed out sitting there and Stephen Jenkins is like really late. And so I'm just nervously pacing. I have other stuff to do and we hear a motorcycle roll up and Stephen Jenkins walks into the studio and he's holding his helmet and we're all sitting in the live room and we're kind of seated in chairs or on the floor, clearly waiting for someone who's late. And I'd never met him before. And listen, I have a high tolerance for like alpha pricks. You know what I mean? Like I've dealt with, so, I mean, and mostly the heat you're going to get is from a manager, you know, sometimes from a producer, almost never from a band. Bands are highly socialized, mostly sweethearts. The more successful a band is, the cooler they are. The only problems I've really ever had are like young bucks, you know, like people who are like untested and who are, you know, they're just like, you got to be a little bit of a narcissist to charge ahead in this game, you know, so they haven't really been beaten down yet, you know, and I'm, I get it. You kind of need all that stuff, but so Stephen Jenkins comes in and he's holding his motorcycle helmet and he's pacing but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say hi. He doesn't really acknowledge that there's a meeting going on and he's pacing. And I realized like, whoa, this is like theater. Like this is, we're, we're going somewhere with this. Now I like anything weird. So I'm just like, I'm all in on this shit. You know what I mean? So he's pacing, he's pacing. And then he comes up to me and he sits down next to me and I remember feeling like shocked I was like oh he knows who I am and I'm like oh I'm the only person in the room he doesn't know so he's just assuming I'm the dude who owns the studio so he sits next to me and he says what are we going to do about this rate now we were 250 a day right 250 a day that's fucking garbage prices right I mean, even at that time, it was like insane. And I mean, honestly, there was no one even close to doing what we were doing at that price. So I was like, kind of, I didn't expect that. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I said, hey, you know, we're sold out all the time. It's really cheap. So I, I, we don't change our rates for anyone. And so he stands up and he starts pacing around. And then I realized like, whoa, this is like some car dealership stuff you know what i mean like he's like he read some books on the like negotiation or and he's in his head man and i, I just thought like it's kind of beautiful but this is this is bad do you know what i mean like like do you really want to be around this energy so i think i get this at th that time i'm still like doesn't matter i won't be here so he's pacing and he's pacing he stops he looks at me and he's like okay let's do it and then he turns around and he walks out of the room and we hear his motorcycle start up and then he drives away. I never saw him again. I never saw him in the studio. I never saw him physically again <laughs> after that anywhere. And they were in there for, I don't know, months. Maybe he dipped in. I don't know. And that was like a huge lesson for me. I, I learned that uh, really our like ideal bands are working class career bands that are making uh, interesting, challenging uh, catalog and not these monolithic, you know, multi-manager uh, major label bands, which honestly mostly suck in the studio. Some of the things I learned from being at Tiny, working at Tiny and being around John, I mean, the number one thing I think would be fearlessness just in 
I mean, in recording and in business and to some degree in your personal life, I mean, John's fearlessness is 100% the reason that place could exist and could continue to exist. And so it's funny. It's one of the things I, I also like complain with other engineers a lot is like everyone likes to talk the talk about experimental recording techniques or being very bold in the way you're recording sound. But most bands, when it comes down to it, are remarkably conservative and remarkably fearful. And like everyone likes to try to like reach for that stuff. But at the end, everyone's like, I don't know, like maybe someone's not going to like it or maybe we won't get put on this Spotify playlist if our song sounds too much. It's like, it's really depressing because, you know, everyone champions all these experimentalists and then most people don't actually do it. Well, John always does it. And John's records are always a, a good mile or two in front of everything else in terms of that. And so sort of having that sense of fearlessness, I think, is maybe the biggest thing for me. I was such a latecomer to San Francisco and, you know, the West Coast in general. So for me, there's a lot of like hearing about what used to be there, what was there. But, you know, if you spend seven or eight years in a place, then you see even more sort of things like that kind of disappear. And part of the beauty of Tiny was that it's like right in the mission. In a way, though, part of the beauty of Tiny was that little compound down there. It was like a like a national park for weirdness that felt like a, a connection to the past. And then hearing about, you know, spending more time and learning from people about like, oh, yeah, it's like survival research laboratories used to be down there. And they were like literally blowing shit up. You're like, whoa, like, you know, kind of the people that started Burning Man before it became the thing that everybody hates now, like like that spirit. And then even going back to like when it was the farm and it was like this punk rock club. Um, in a way, it felt like this little bubble that because of where it was by the freeway and how it couldn't be developed or whatever, it was almost like a little bit of like time travel to like, oh, yeah, this is probably what cool old San Francisco felt like, you know, to some degree. So in a weird way, it's like you drive through all the sort of more modern stuff or kind of pass through it. And then you kind of like get back in there. And you're like, oh, yeah, in some ways, a lot of this stuff hasn't changed. When I think of Tiny Telephone, I think most of the mountain goats and of Tao, I'm a get down, stay down. And the hyper-literate, extremely prolific songwriting of John Darnielle that um, is, is hard to fit into a music business that is used to every two years you have 11 songs. Um, that seems like a major accomplishment that Tiny Telephone really helped that develop. And then with Tao to just see a singer songwriter who didn't look or play or write or sound like so many singer songwriters who were happening. Um, and to see Vanderslice and tiny telephone really stand behind Tao um, and really make these records that were so great and so powerful um, that felt revolutionary to me. I remember the first time I saw Tao play, I was at the makeout room in San Francisco and it was part of this event uh, where it was mostly writers reading and then they always had one musician come and play. And it was always kind of like a white guy, he would tune his guitar for 20 minutes and then he would play four sad songs about the girl who didn't love him anymore. And, you know, God bless them all. But it was not that interesting. And I remember Tao came on, she had sleigh bells strapped to one foot and she was playing her guitar like she was holding a tray. And she started to play and sing and she didn't give a fuck about anything. And it, and it blew the room to shreds. And I remember I had no idea who this was, uh, but I wanted more of it right away. And uh, I remember that Vanderslice was there. And she kind of came off stage and she was talking to John Vanderslice and I went right up there so that John Vanderslice could say, I want you to meet Daniel <laughs> because I was so excited about the noise that she was making. And 
Um, when I think about Tiny Telephone and when I think about Vanderslice, I think about him standing behind so many artists, but the two biggest ones for me are the Mountain Goats and Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. So the way that the studio and and my own records kind of related to each other was, in many ways, they were totally dependent on each other. And I, I, I knew from, I think, when I first started thinking about starting a studio, it really was, you know, getting obsessed with, like, English concept records and, like, you know, Kinks records and Prague records where I I remember just looking at like the at Wish You Were Here. Like the I you know, I guess it was done in Abbey Road and just looking at like the the time that it took them to record that record. One, I knew I was like 15 and I was like, fuck, they wrote this in the studio, man. If they, they were there for three months or four months or whatever it was. And the two, I also knew that like to really use the studio as an instrument and as like an integral part of like creating music that you had to, I don't know, you had to kind of own the means of production. I knew that I would never have like, a, you know, EMI or some crazy label to give me money and that I knew that it would the only way it would work is if I had my own studio and I could go there after hours. So that's really what the the whole idea I I would have never I wouldn't have started a studio had I not been obsessed with making records. It would have been even too crazy for me to as a business. But I think that knowing that I could go in, I mean all of Pixel was done after hours, late at night, you know, we would book studio time, but there was so much, like, for instance, when Third Eye Blind, like, called me, and they're like, hey, we're going to take, like, a week off, we're still going to pay you, but we have to do some shows, and I asked them, do you mind if I go in and record? They said, yeah, but just leave our mic set up, and I went in, they had a drum set, and, and like, these really good, like, tube mics over the kit, and I was like, fuck, and I remember Spoon was in town playing... I asked Jim from Spoon if he'd come come in and play drums on some stuff. And so we just left the mics up. They were well-placed. It was, you know, like, it was kind of fun to operate within these constraints. And we recorded, and it was, I don't know, it was just amazing. To, I just would never have had that access. And I remember that as we were leaving there was like a 3EB guitar pick on the ground and Jim picked it up and he still mentions that. <laughs> the 3EB pick. <laughs> like, like I don't know if he still has it or if he wonders if I have it, but I think that like the kind of the the back and forth with, like for instance, going on tour, coming back with like a couple thousand dollars and then buying gear. Put, so, kind of like plowing whatever money I made from tour back into the studio, but also knowing that I was going to be using that gear or that instrument on the next record that I made. That feedback loop was like really, really important to my records. And I think it allowed my records to, to change and to sound different, you know, um, and to kind of develop and grow. So, I and of course, when you're like, when you're touring you'd be playing with a band and then they would like 
listen to your records and they'd say, oh, we want to come to San Francisco and record at your studio. We like what you're doing. And so there was like this really cool feedback loop with me being out there and being visible and bands and people like hearing about the studio and then coming to San Francisco and recording. So, Transmanual is a song that Scott Solcher and I recorded for Pixel Revolt. Um, the The song is about um, the U.S. in Iraq, and uh, no one believes me until they actually hear that, and then they go back and listen, listen to the song. I've like gotten in arguments with people at shows about this, like on stage, because I take questions. And uh, Darnell from the Mountain Goats helped me workshop the lyrics on Pixel, and he really pushed me to make it like a deeper kind of allegorical song. And he also gave me the line about Aqua Mirabilis, which I love. Um, and I always think about him when I sing that song. And this song has, it, it's really built on a bed of ebowed uh, acoustic guitars, and an ebow is like a magnetic kind of thing that make, it basically makes a guitar string resonate just infinitely long and there's a lot of like real mellotron on it and there's songs that you record that are a struggle they're difficult they're difficult to write and translating the idea that you have for the song is agony and it takes a long time and then there are songs like transmanual that are easy and they're a fucking gift and this was an easy song and you know, some stuff, when you look back on it, feels like a miss. Some of it feels like it's partially successful. And then some stuff feels like, whoa, this is maybe better than what I can do now. And that is how I feel about Transmanual, where I'm like, fuck, this clicked. The players, the singing, the thinking. This was the best of what I could have done in 2005. My name is Miriam Caduce. I am a engineer, producer, and musician. So I took intro to recording at Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco. And JV has been always such a, a supporter of any of the interns that came from Wham. Like so many of the en- of the engineers, like Sammy Perez, Danielle Goldsmith, um, all, they came from Wham. And he, I feel like their whole, what things they teach to their students and their interns really aligned with JV's way of working as well. So I took classes there and I interned at Tiny Telephone and at Wham at the same time. And, you know, eventually there was a day where like JV was like, hey, seems like you know what you're doing in here. There's a recording session and feels like it would be really a great match for you. Do you want to do it? And that was like just the beginning of it all. You know, that was like my first step into being able to work as a recording engineer.
my experience at Women's Audio Mission was amazing. It felt really good to have sort of have a safe space to be able to learn about recording and not be afraid to ask dumb questions even though like every school is like there's no stupid questions like when you're in a recording class that is like you know 95% male everyone thinks you're the dumbest one in the room uh, or or maybe that's the way you you know you yourself may feel i don't know it's def- it's definitely really hard in like the recording school side of things which i didn't go to recording school but i went to music school and i took some music tech classes and most of my classes were male students, um, who a lot of them were awesome, but there's always like this, you're a woman, you don't, you know, you don't know what you're doing or just like over explaining things that you already know. (laughs) And, um, and so it was nice to be able to be at WAM and, um, be able to learn in a, in a safe environment like that. And I'd say that, JV loves Wham. He loves anytime he's like, Hey, do you know somebody from Wham that would want to intern? Like, that's what he asks me. Do you know somebody from Wham? Uh, because he just loves the, the people who come out of there. And, um, I think that the cool thing about growing up in the Bay area and having women's audio mission as a space to be able to learn and, um, have a community of women or non-binary people, um, that you can communicate with or talk to or shoot ideas with is really awesome. And in a way it's made me feel less alone. I never felt too much of a boys club feeling being at Wham or a tiny telephone, but I have felt that at other studios definitely where I'm, a guest engineer at a studio, you know, somewhere in LA or somewhere in New York. And they're kind of like, Oh, (laughs) you're the engineer. Um, um, and, uh, the cool thing about that is, is that I will be perhaps the first woman to work at that recording studio. And because of that, I'll have those same studios reach out to me and be like, Hey, do you know any other women who are recording engineers in our area? Because we'd love to hire more people. So in a way, I feel like there's more awareness that there's a huge divide on that end. And I think that studios are starting to try a little and in kind of creating an equal space, but there's so much work to be done, definitely. So Deerhoof was coming in quite a bit uh, at this time. They were recording with Jay Polici, and Jay told me a story that was really, really interesting. He said that they would record these kind of short bits of songs, you know, like eight bars, for instance, and they felt like very abstract or they didn't make any sense, and then they would do another short bit, and they would keep recording these like kind of chopped up fragments. And then they would get, you know, like, to work and put all of these fragments together into this really, like, fucking cool, deeply experimental song. And those records that they made, at, you know, at the studio, to me, those are some of the best things that ever came out of the studio. So let's hear Buck and Judy by Deerhoof.
So the issue with touring, which I think a lot of people probably have, is that you don't really exist uh, as strongly as someone who, li- like your town. I lived in San Francisco. You don't really live in San Francisco because you're in and out all the time. And if you're back in, you feel like you're preparing to leave and you don't want to, you don't want to concretize like relationships there because that feels threatening to you wanting to leave again. Right. So you're in this like horrible kind of like middle space. Right. And this is why people who tour a lot, they're often, you know, they're often like emotionally damaged people and, you know, there are ways through it, but you're going to have to get through it. So, the problem is, too, is that you often meet people on tour that you really connect with because you're going back to the same places over and over and again, and you're you're creating, like, deep relationships and deep friendships. And so I was, you know, very single and touring and really not looking to be in a relationship. And I was touring Europe. At, th- at this point, this was 2006, 2007. I was touring Europe all the time because I was on a German label and I had a booking agent in the EU and things were, you know, really starting to gel. And that's, I, I mean, if you're touring in the States, that is a big, big thing for you to also, because you you kind of, if you like touring, you run out of touring options. You know, if you're on a record cycle, it's two years, you might do two national tours. And the idea of adding this like wonderland where you can tour Europe and then stay in Madrid for a week after the end of your tour or, you know, in Antwerp or Brussels or wherever, Paris, it doesn't matter. Like this, first off, it's the only way your broke ass is going to get to Europe. And it's definitely the only way that you're going to be able to like, you know, have a vacation tacked on to the end of you know, grueling, but really fun and rewarding work. So I was touring in Europe a lot. And through Not A Surf, I met someone, let's call her Madeline, uh, who had gone to school with Not A Surf and was really good friends with the band. And, you know, I had a camera slung over my neck. We were all chatting and laughing. And then all of a sudden the band disappears and it's just me and Madeline. So I wanted to go out and take photos of this like crazy, beautiful, medieval city. And she, you know, joined me. So we went walking around and, you know, she had studied classical languages at the Sorbonne. She was fascinating, really interesting, super funny. Um, And then we, we walked around for a couple hours. It was freezing. And, you know, it's just, it's something that you would do on tour that you would absolutely never do in any other circumstance. Somehow this is normal behavior. The bus leaves at 4 a.m. So you have to you have to engage with the, the physical places that you are because you might not be back there for a year or two years. And this is one of the most beautiful cities in Europe. So we're walking. We're somehow connecting in a way that I, I just don't think that you would connect with someone in that way if you meet them in your city first off there's no clock you know which i think is actually very romantic like like if you meet someone in in a city where you live you just like make plans to see them later and that energy might dissipate or it might not but there's something about tour where it can really be in kind of incendiary and so two hours go by and i'm like i really fucking like this person like this is a, a, a super smart funny and kind of vulnerable sweet person. So we find our way to like the kind of like the center of Strasbourg and we're right on the right in front of the cathedral which is a beautiful masterpiece. It's like one of the it was the tallest cathedral in Europe for a time and we walk up the steps and I ask her nervously if she wants to kiss me and she says yes. Actually, first she says no. <laughs> and then and then I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then so 10 or 20 seconds go by and she says, actually, I've changed my mind. And then we, we started, which is really amazing, actually, to think about. And then we started kissing and that was like really sweet. And there were some workers who were inexplicably working on the cathedral at two, three in the morning. And there were maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 feet away. And they were looking at us and talking and they're speaking in French. And I, I said, what are they saying? And she said, in France, there's a kind of a 
maxim that if you kiss on the steps of a church, then that means you're going to get married. And what's odd is that at that point, I was like, man, I'd be lucky if we got married. Like, this would be cool. And fast forward, like, six months later, we're getting married in Paris because we've decided that we do want to try and see what is between us, and we need to get her uh, a permanent uh, a green card. And so that's what we did. We got married uh, in France, which was free and really fun, actually. People threw rice, and I remember thinking, wait, that's not good for the birds. And I thought, I, I can't handle these questions right now. <laughs> this is too much. And that was on the at the end of another tour that I was doing in Europe. Um, and... We got married, and she moved to live with me uh, in San Francisco, and it was amazing. So one thing that happens to you if, if you do this, if you pull someone from their life, their full life, she was living in Paris, she had an amazing apartment, friends, she had like a you know, like an ecosystem. And we made a decision together that she was going to move to the U.S. But when you pull someone from their life, you're aware that this is very problematic on a lot of levels. You're, in a way, you're responsible for, you're putting a lot of things in motion that you were entirely responsible for. And I wanted to be with her. I didn't ever not want to be with her. And... So, you know, you have to navigate these emotions, but there's no way that this doesn't play into and kind of like provide some real tension in a relationship when you're pulling someone from a different continent to join you in a life where you already have a really full, complete, and overwhelming life in many ways. And I remember there was this one moment where we were in my place in San Francisco and we were talking about getting married and getting her a permanent green card. And she's was like, is this a mistake? And I was honestly said, I have no fucking idea. I really don't know. I mean, I think that when you love someone and you feel physically incapacitated when they're not with you, that you you make extreme decisions and I don't think it's, there's any point to blame yourself from it's what had to happen. It's what had to be done. But I do think that like pulling someone from their life and then dragging them into your life and then exposing them to the stresses and kind of anxieties of your life, that there's going to be repercussions to doing that. I am, by nature, very anti-capitalist. I don't care about money. I'm super, super left-wing. Anything that just even kind of like feels like fucking with the system too much, I, I just, I don't want it. I don't care. But when you own a business and you have overhead and you start to fear landlords and debt collectors and PG&E, and the city, and competitors, it starts to change your brain chemistry. And I, I could just tell you from like experience that everything it does to you is awful. Everything that it makes you think is demonic and destructive, and you turn into a psychopath. So it, it's funny because I watched myself change and then i thought about fuck man like what if you're like ceo of like chevron or raytheon or something like 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 this is fucked up man because i'm just some low-level punk artist who is literally fantasizing about torching down my competitors all the time and like obsessed with you know really running people out of business 
And I guess I would, in some ways, I would justify it by thinking, well, they they do a really shitty job. You know, they're they're not cool to bands. We were always kind of repairing relationships that bands had with studios. Um, and I, I understood when bands would come in wary about booking time in a studio because they would often have like very negative experiences recording, whether it was they would have them like assign weird contracts before recording or studios would ask for like publishing or points or some really weird shit or they just weren't cool. So I felt like maybe in my mind I was just like, oh, I need to like, you know fucking put pour some accelerant on the the <laughs> the roof of this studio because they're kind of like abusive to clients but it's just you're entering into and being controlled by capitalism and it rots your brain and it fucked me up and unfortunately what it made me do was continue to open more studios This episode featured interviews with Daniel Handler, Bo Sorensen, and Mariam Caduce, and music by Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, Deerhoof, John Vanderslice, and me, Young Chomsky. Now until next time, remember, keep the dream alive.